supernatural is something that isn't supposed to happen, but it does happen. AM 1420 WBSN presents Spooky South Ghost with your hosts, Tim Weisberg and Matt Costa. Good evening and welcome to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here with you, along with the silent assassin Matt Costa and science advisor Matt Moniz. And I almost wish that we had the... We need a drop of the Hallelujah Chorus. Because it's 2207 and change, and we're on the air. Yeah. (laughs) Wow. That's crazy. (laughs) It's almost like we're pros at this now. Yeah, that hasn't happened since we first started. See, that's what happens. We get hired by the station, and Mm -hmm. now we have responsibilities. Responsibilities that we Mm -hmm. apparently didn't take very seriously before. Nope. So (laughs) now we do, and now we're here on time to talk about the paranormal with you, as we are each and every Saturday night. So excited to be back on at our regular time slot. Thank you for playing a day game, Red Sox, and helping us out so that we have a full two hours tonight to talk to you with our special guest, Andrea Perrin. If you haven't seen the movie The Conjuring, and at this point, who hasn't? Uh, when even Matt Costa has seen The Conjuring now, who, and he never goes to the movies. I know. I was actually, uh, I was, when I, were, um, when I was going to watch the movie before, mm-hmm. I was expecting a crappy crap fest, if that puts it in a, a good term. But, um, yeah, it was surprisingly good. It's uh, the best horror film that I've seen in a while. Yeah, it certainly is. And I know that uh, that Matt Moniz was a fan of it as well. Uh, Moniz, you know, you don't put it up as high as I do in terms of where it ranks in the overall scheme of horror films. I've got it in probably my top five. Well, I really, really like horror films. I grew up with them and stuff like that. I'm not saying it's a bad movie. I think it is very, very, very well done. I just don't think it's an exorcist type of thing. Well, I don't it, it is up there. I don't think anything is the exorcist. I think that that's kind of going to hold on to that number one spot maybe forever. Uh, but this is a, an excellent film. But what a lot of people don't know is the complete true story of The Conjuring. And we know that the, the film is based on a true story. We had Keith Johnson in here a few weeks ago telling us, the inside story from his perspective, but now we are so excited to be joined by somebody who actually lived through this, and, and we feel bad that our family had to go through this, but to be able to share this with people uh, firsthand, firsthand account from someone who lived it and who is featured in the film and has been just making the rounds and, and giving so much of her time to sharing this story, uh, we want to welcome into the program Andrea Perrin. Good evening, Andrea. How are you? Did I not do it right? There we go. Oh, how about the button? There we go. Hi, Andrea. How are you? Hi. <laughs> I'm like, okay, I'm going to run over to Facebook and write <laughs> technical glitch in the message board. <laughs> well, we, I mean, we, we can either get, a, get on the air on time or we can be technically sound. It's one or the other. Oh, okay. It's not both. <laughs> no, okay. no. Not at 10 o'clock on Saturday. I was, I was, I was in here at 6 o'clock this morning, and, and literally I got here like just at 6 o'clock this morning. That's how... How my day began, so I'm sure it will not end on a good note. But I'm so glad that we finally get to talk with you. And um, I'm excited about this because we've been chatting back and forth for a few weeks now. And you've been giving me little tidbits about kind of what is the real story beyond just what we saw in the film. And, of course, we had Keith Johnson in here. uh, But he can only offer the perspective of being the investigator who was called in first with his pyro organization. This is something that you actually had to endure. Oh, my. That's a great note to start on. It is. (laughs) Um, I just came off of an eight-hour road trip 
and um, I think I left you a message about being stoked with caffeine and ready for this. I'm ready for any question that you ask. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, and I will tell you that uh, even though my sister Cindy objects mightily every time I say this, it was the best 10 years of my life. It taught me everything from day one when I walked into that house carrying a heavy box destined for the kitchen and saw my first full-body apparition and did not know he was a ghost because he was that solid in form. Um, I knew. Uh, well, I didn't know immediately. I knew a few minutes later when Cindy said, Cindy came in the kitchen and said, Mom, who's that uh, other man in the dining room with Mr. Kenyon? And my mother said, there is no other man in the dining room, honey. And then Nancy came in and said, that man in the dining room just disappeared. Ooh. And that uh, happened within literally minutes of us crossing the threshold to the farm. Well, now, you, you had lived elsewhere in Rhode Island before moving into this farmhouse in Harrisville, right? Yes, we did. We d uh, contrary to what it says in the film, we did not ever live in New Jersey. Uh, another thing that I would like to clarify immediately is that uh, my character in the film is a little snippy <laughs> at the beginning about having been dragged to this place, uh, and nothing could have been further than the truth. I would have swallowed my own tongue before I was ever disrespectful to either of my parents, and I was thrilled and delighted to move to the farm couldn't wait to move to the farm from the moment I saw it. And I um, it was not a flirty girl either. I was a bookworm. They mistook me for my sister Nancy. So I just wanted to clarify, clarify those few points referring to the portrayal of my character in the film. Uh, other than that, uh, I think they got it pretty much right. I was very protective toward my younger sisters. And I was never really afraid in the house, except the night of the seance, which is portrayed uh, in the film as the beginning of an exorcism, mm -hmm. which did not occur. Um, first of all, uh, Ed Warren was perfectly capable of conducting what you saw in the film, but he never had the chance to even remotely go there because my father punched him in the face and took him to the floor. <laughs> And um, whatever came into my mother that night had picked her up in the chair she was sitting in and heaved her 20 feet into the adjacent room. It was from the dining room into the parlor. That was the only time in the 10 years that I lived there with my family that I was truly terrified out of my mind. And I can revisit it in a split second uh, at will. Um, not that it's something that I like to revisit, but I find that in telling the true story, I must revisit it frequently. And it's what is the most compelling uh, incident which occurred at the farm in the 10 years we were there that involved other mortals. Um, I truly believe that whatever entered my mother that night was not of this world. It spoke a language through her that doesn't exist on this planet. It was not Latin. I studied Latin. It was not that. Um, and it was not her voice. And mm -hmm. it was horrible. And it could have killed her if it wanted to. 
um, what it, I believe, what it wanted to do was to make its presence known uh, to everyone that was uh, in that house that night, including Mr. and Mrs. Warren, uh, Mary Pastorella, the medium, and a very kind and loving priest who was as freaked out as anyone else present. Well, I do want to get into uh, sort of how this spirit or spirits uh, insinuated itself into your life. Uh, But before we do that, we do have a call on the line. And, of course, we have the phone lines open throughout the course of the program, 508-996-0500-877-996-1420. If you want to call in toll-free, you can also jump in the chat room on our website. If you go to the Spooky TV link there on SpookySouthCoast.com or go to the Spooky TV link on any of our social media accounts, you'll be able to jump right into the chat room and share your questions that way as well. We are getting some complaints from the chat room that they're getting tinny audio, and we're going to work on trying to fix that. But uh, if you do need to get the audio online, just go to WBSM.com, and you can listen to the WBSM player. It won't exactly sync up exactly right, but you'll be able to get the point. And actually, as I'm speaking, the call dropped off. (laughs) But uh, if you want to call back in, 508-996-0500-877-996-1420. And you said that on that night, it made its presence known to everyone that was there. But I know that leading up to that, it, it had kind of had uh, an impact and kind of made its acquaintance to everybody living in the house uh, on a separate level. Well, it had, but uh, it's it's hard to distinguish and delineate one from the other when there were so many things happening in the house with such frequency and really on a regular basis for the most part. I mean, sometimes we'd go a week or two mm-hmm. without having something happen, but that was um, that was not the rule. Uh, usually somebody had something happen to them practically every day over the course of the 10 years. However, that was the incident that was uh, most profound in terms of attacks on my mother. Uh, the film represents the attacker as Bathsheba Sherman. There is some dispute about that, and I'm uh, going to cover that. Well, I've covered it already, uh, introduced the notions in Volume 1 and Volume 2 of the trilogy House of Darkness, House of Light. Uh, my father believes that the offending spirit who was so challenged by my mother and who threatened her repeatedly was not Bathsheba Sherman, but was most likely Mrs. John Arnold, because the apparition clearly had a broken neck, and Mrs. Arnold had hung herself in the barn. Or Susan Arnold, who was her daughter, I believe, uh, although we haven't been able to uh, verify exactly the lineage, but Susan Arnold hung herself in the morning room off of my bedroom. So there were two women in that house, Uh, over the course of the last few centuries that died uh, by hanging. And it was most likely one of the two of them rather than Bathsheba, although Bathsheba had a very tarnished reputation during life and in afterlife. And Mrs. Warren walked into the house the first time she ever came to the house, and my mother did not seek them out, actually, Keith Johnson is the one that told the Warrens about what was happening at the farm. Mm -hmm. And when they came to the door on the eve of Halloween in 1973, she walked into the kitchen, laid her hand on 
the black stove and covered her forehead and said, almost immediately, I sense a malignant entity in this house. Her name is Bathsheba. And there's no way Mrs. Warren knew anything about that. She had yet to hear any of the history or know anything about what was going on in the house. And that was her almost immediate assessment after, of course, greeting my mother and introducing her husband. So there, and there will pro- that will probably all, always be a mystery. That's part of, the, of what makes the story a mystery. Mm-hmm. But the fact of the matter is that there were at least a dozen spirits in that house that were uh, made manifest regularly, uh, so frequently that they were recognizable figures to virtually every member of our family. Well, and of course, you mentioned uh, House of Darkness, House of Light, which is a three-part uh, series. And as you mentioned, the first two parts are already available from your website of the same name, yes. which is also linked up on the front page of SpookySouthCoast.com okay. if people want to go there as well during the course of the program. Oh, no problem. I, I think that uh, that's the best way for people to really get the true story and to get the inside story. Uh, as much as we can cover, uh, as much as we can get to here tonight, but uh, really to, to be able to get the entire story, you need to read all three volumes and and, of course, uh, you're still working on the third volume. Do you have an idea of when it might be finished? Or? Uh, very soon, actually. Uh, there is just a little bit more text that needs to be added under a few photographs, and it's good to go. But I will tell you, honestly, I've stalled it a bit, um, this last one, because Volume 2 just came out in March. And because of all of the really unfortunate and negative activity around the farm itself since the uh, – opening of the film mm-hmm. uh i didn't want to stir the cauldron and i i i postponed the release of volume three because i i just don't uh in any way want it to seem that uh i'm i i guess the best way to put it is capitalizing or uh exploiting Mm. what's going on around there. There have been some serious intrusions at the farm, and the lunatic fringe came out of the freaking woodwork when this film opened, and I'm really angry about it, and I don't know what to do about it from 1,200 miles away, and Bathsheba's gravestone has been desecrated, and there's been a lot of very negative karma going on uh, around the release of the film in terms of uh, just behavioral acting out of adolescence, I think. But there's, uh, you know, I mean, arrests have been made. This is, is serious business. Right, and it's, it's pulling police uh, away from Everything doing their job and, and forcing them to, to be patrolling this farmhouse. Yes, which is very remote. You know, so if they're up taking care of the property up there, the village, which is miles away, is you know being left unattended, and it's just not fair, and it's not right. And I know I'm preaching to the choir. I know your followers uh, of this radio program, of your show, your broadcast, and people in the paranormal community in general are not the ones disrupting Harrisville. They're not. So uh, what I do when I do a show is just say, please pray for my friends at the farm. Keep them in your in your most positive thoughts in the light, because this is a, a scary time, and they have really been through it these, this last month. 
uh, it has been um, it has been the big black cloud over what has otherwise been a bright light in the firmament. You know, the books were out for two years, and I think they had three visitors. And they were high school friends of mine that said, I remember coming to a party here in 1976, you know. Hi, how are you? Um, not trying to be intrusive at all, uh, just stopping by to say hello. And that happened over the first two years that the books were out worldwide. And now all hell has broken loose up there. And I know that it has uh, been mitigated somewhat in the last week or so, but still, you know, the, the folks that own that farm deserve a good night's sleep. And who would want that kind of scrutiny and that kind of disruption showered upon them? Can you imagine trying to sleep in your own home at night and wondering who's crawling around outside? Right. Peeking in your windows? And, and not just, knowing... Yeah. Not knowing that you're safe in your own home, that if you if you go out to, you know, take the garbage out, <laughs> that you might be, uh, you know, infiltrated by teenagers out there just looking, and, and then all of a sudden they'll start snapping your picture. Look, there's there's a woman that lives in the Conjuring house. Yeah, now, I know. It's terrible, but, well, I've said my piece about that, but you know, getting back to your uh, initial question. Well, I do, I do just want to ask you a quick question about sure. that, because you did put out a video, and I there's some, some discussion going on in the chat room about that video and about whether or not you know you were fostering people going there by dis by putting out these books in the books do you give the location of the farmhouse no i was going to say i could imagine that you you kept knowing that you know the sutcliffs and that you uh have interviewed norma and you you there's video of you online uh interviewing her and and knowing how much of a help she was to you in the years since that i couldn't imagine that you'd want to invade their privacy by publishing that information so they no, weren't they I weren't getting did. this from in you in fact if i might interrupt you just briefly mm -hmm. not only um did every every description of the farm and its rough location um go into the books with her permission uh it was it was not even i mean so many people already knew about this place right. it was for decades about this place that were locals no, so it it wasn't really that. I never ever anywhere published the address. Um, you know, the only way to be honest about it, since so many people knew about it, was to name the road. But the road is seven miles long mm -hmm. uh, before it even goes up into Massachusetts. And on top of that, the house is very secluded. And on top of that, uh, there was no way to tell this story without just you know telling the truth that this occurred in Harrisville, Rhode Island. I would have had to literally fictionalize the entire thing in order to protect that location. And, and fictionalizing one aspect would call into question Every what you're other aspect exactly. of it, yes, absolutely. Um, every photograph that I've ever taken of the farm, including the ones that I've published online of the vintage photographs of our home, um, well, those were ours, and the house looked very different at that time. But the ones that I've, the photographs that we've put out uh, in the last couple of years are almost all of them from quite a distance, uh, indistinguishable uh, in terms of the, we choose very carefully what images we use. Uh, and on top of that, <laughs> um, I never, ever, ever published the street address. And my um, SEO administrator, Ms. Margie Mursky, from Minneapolis, um, scours the internet and removes everything that she can from every place that she can from the idiots 
who have been in public records been able to find the address and then put it out there at will. Well, They're what, the ones what was, that I have an objection about. What was the publishing date of the, of the first volume of the book? Uh, it was March 11th of, it was the day the tsunami hit Japan, March 11th, 2011. So having already been featured on Ghost Hunters in season two, which came out in 2005, was probably filmed in 2004, mm -hmm. so uh, Norma Sutcliffe had already contacted taps right. and had them come and the by that by the time you published the first volume of the book it had already been featured on ghost hunters and seen worldwide right. and so anybody that did figure out what street it was on would have been able to just drive down the road and find it right and so. it was so well known anybody could just drive into harrisville and ask sure i mean i you can't know? imagine there's too many 1700s farmhouses left around uh, and, and that you know oh, look as distinctive as that there. <laughs> well but i was going to say but as look as distinctive as that property does too right Right. So just I just wanted to get that out there and, and just kind of clear the air a little bit uh, about that because there's been a lot of question of how people are, are finding this house. And I know that there's been a few morons that have posted videos online with Google Maps directions of how to get there and, and showing it on Google Earth and everything. So right. I just and wanted to kind of get that. nothing to do with any of that. Those are, you know, the, uh, the fanatic fringe out there that just wants to draw more and more uh, people to the same place that they're uh, intruding upon. I mean, they just completely ignore the posted no trespassing signs. Completely ignore them. Walk past them like they don't even exist. I, I, I can't. I mean, I'd say they were raised by wolves, but that would be a terrible <laughs> insult to wolves. No. Well, it, uh, let, let, well, we can just move on from them, and let's okay. not give them any more uh, any more credence, except to say that you know our our friends out in the paranormal have been donating their time down there, yes. keeping a tight perimeter around there. So watch yes. out, because you know the the only thing worse than uh, running afoul of the police department there is running afoul of Andrew Lake and Ken DeCosta. Yes, in the dark. thank you, <laughs> thank you, thank you. I was going to mention those two fine gentlemen. And uh, Marlena Gabriel and also Julie DeMay have been uh, wonderful in terms of their protective influence around two people who I adore truly and have done nothing but help me from the inception of this project. So now, uh, getting back into the actual uh, occurrences that happened in that house, now you never had any uh, of these type experiences before moving to Harrisville. No. No spirit activity, no paranormal activity of any kind? No, I would say that the, um, the only thing that was odd about me, personally, was my innate ability to communicate with animals, which uh, showed itself very, very early in my life, by two, three, four years, between two and four years old. My parents saw clearly that I was an unusual child in that respect. But other than that, we were a perfectly normal family that moved into the farmhouse and left 10 years later as a paranormal family. And when you moved into the house, I mean, how, what was family life like for you guys? Was, was everything uh, hunky-dory? Were there some problems? Was there uh, any kind of strife going on, any kind of dysfunction going on in the family? Uh, no, other than just the stressors involved with moving. Mm-hmm. And that, of course, is a, even though it wasn't that huge a move from Cumberland to Harrisville, uh, really only like a 30-minute drive, uh, it was a big move you know, moving into such a, a massive colonial farmhouse. And our, our things 
seemed so sparse once we got there. You know, we'd come from a like a seven-room Cape Cod and went into this 12-room and three pantries and a woodshed and a summer kitchen and, yeah. you know, and then there's the barn and the, I mean, it was huge, huge. It seemed vacuous to us and it just sucked up our furniture. And so it wasn't long before um, mom started hitting uh, local antique shops and whatever she could find at yard sales and I mean, we we really were a Salvation Army family at the very beginning because it was whatever we could get that was uh, affordable to fill this incredible house. It was just massive. But, of course, you know, within the first day, we had uh, all of our bedrooms chosen and our beds set up, and I had my own room directly above the parlor, and I was the only one with a double bed, and thank God I had one because my sisters within, well, the first night, Cindy came and crawled into bed with me the first night and said, I hear voices, I hear voices. And I asked, I, you know, invited her in to sleep with me and I asked her what she was talking about and I was woozy, but I remember. And she said, I, because it was shocking what she said to me. She said, there's, there's a lot of voices in my room. They're all talking at once. They're all around my bed. They won't let me sleep. It's like they're trying to keep me awake, and they keep saying the same thing over and over again. And I asked her what it was, and she said, there are seven dead soldiers buried in the wall. Wow. That's uh, to to have something come through like that too. I mean, normally you can kind of, if it's something simple like get out or you know things like that, you can kind of chalk it up to just being a, a almost a a figment of her imagination, you know, or, or or just nerves and being in a new house or anything like that. But to have something come through that is both so direct and so obscure, uh, you must have just been petrified when you heard that. <sighs> Strangely enough, I wasn't. I was more fascinated because it was such a direct message and also because I was hearing a horn. I could hear uh, uh, what sounded like a bugle at a, at a distance. At first, I thought it was the wind coming through the eaves because it was the middle of winter. It was the second week of January when we moved in and the wind was howling and the house was new and you know i'll tell you not only did every single one of us at some point wonder if it was our imaginations at some point every single one of us questioned our own sanity so and it seemed like things were starting to ramp up pretty quickly uh, you know, normal, normally with a lot of these stories, uh, a lot of these cases, we hear about how it takes a, a kind of a long time for the activity to ramp up. But it seems like things picked up pretty much right away from the minute that yeah, you moved in. They did. And the thing that's most interesting about that is that we visited the farm a number of times between when my mother found it in June of 1970 and when we actually moved in. They closed on the property in December of 1970, but of course it fell so close to the holidays that my mother insisted that we we spend Christmas in Cumberland and move into the house in January, and it, that gave Mr. Kenyon some extra time too because, you know, he'd lived there for I don't know how many decades, and it was just loaded with to the gunnels with stuff, and the barn too. 
and he needed some extra time. Plus, there was some problem with the survey. It wasn't coming in exactly as it should, and so and it was so impossible. There was snow on the ground. They just they couldn't get it exactly right. There were a few issues with that. So it ended up um, that we stayed in the house in Cumberland about three weeks longer than we had intended to. But in all the times that we went to visit Mr. Kenyon, that entire summer, fall, and into the beginning of winter, uh, nothing happened. Nothing happened to any of us until the day we moved into the house, but until we occupied it. You, you must have known something was up when uh, Mr. Kenyon gave your, your father an ominous warning, and, and weren't, weren't the fireplaces sealed up? Yes, the fireplaces were all sealed in the house, completely sealed over. Uh, the mantel boards were all exposed, but the, the innards were completely sealed up. Uh, and the day that we moved in, after, and my father didn't know that three of us had seen the man in the dining room. He didn't know anything about that. Uh, but just as Mr. Kenyon had finished taking his last belongings out of the china cabinet in the dining room, and we helped move his stuff out, he used our truck to move the last of his stuff, and Dad and I went to the storage unit that he had, uh, that his son had gotten for him, and offloaded the last of his belongings for him. But prior to that happening, he asked my father to go for a walk with him outside and took him out into the side yard in the middle of a snowstorm. And um, he just put his hand on my father's arm and said, Roger, for the sake of your family, leave the lights on at night. And that was literally the only thing that he said to my father. And, of course, you move into a huge house like this, my father immediately thought, you know, so the girls don't fall down stairs they're not familiar with, so mm -hmm. that they can find their way to the one bathroom that's on the first floor. You know, it didn't occur to him that that meant anything else until months later. Um, but my mother did ask him. He came for uh, coffee and cake one afternoon while we were out sledding, and my mother uh, said to him, uh, Earl there, I hear very strange sounds in the parlor, uh, and he just kind of winked at her, and, and had a, he had a quirky grin, and he said, swallows in the chimney, my dear, swallows in the chimney. Hmm. And it was, the way he said it was like, that's what he'd been telling himself for decades. Right. But he always kept all the lights on in the house. He and his wife, for all the years they lived there, and we didn't find out until we started to get to know other people in the community that there was never a time anybody drove past that house in the middle of the night that it didn't glow because every single light in that house was left on all night long. Well, we are talking with Andrea Perrin. She's the author of House of Darkness, House of Light, the inside story of what happened in the Conjuring House in Harrisville, Rhode Island. Uh, we're going to take a break, real quick break. When we come back on the other side, we will talk more with Andrea. We'll also take your calls at 508-996-0500, Back in just a minute here on Spooky South Coast on WBSM. Hello. Hey, man. Hello. You up? No. Wake up. I need to talk to you. I think your house is haunted. Hey, come on. It's 2.30 in the morning. I can't sleep in here, man. I'm scared. Wow. 
welcome back into Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here along with the silent assassin, Matt Costa, science advisor, Matt Moniz. You can watch the show at SpookySouthCoast.com slash Spooky-TV or slash SpookyTV. That works, too. And uh, you can see what's going on in the studio. I guess the audio is a little better now, Matt. We've been able to improve it a bit. Uh, yep. So far, so good. I think. So if you want to listen to it uh, there while we are uh, broadcasting via video, and if not, if you have some issues with the audio, you can always get the uh, online streaming audio from WBSM.com as well. We also want to remind everybody that we are on Twitter, at SpookySC. We're on Facebook, and now Matt Costa and myself are on Vine, too. So you can watch. We, we send out some Vines before the show, and Matt sends out some during the program. Yep. So you can follow me, at Tim Weisberg, and you're at Matt Costa. Yeah, it's still not terribly interesting, but... No, well, you've got a very <laughs> limited amount of time you to do, be interesting, and it's not enough time. Yeah, What's it, 10 seconds? That's enough time for me to say, um, and then yeah. my time is up. But uh, we are talking with Andrea Perrin. She's the author of House of Darkness, House of Light. Uh, it's a three-part series of books dealing with what really went on with the Perrin family living in the house that was featured in the film The Conjuring. Well, not the actual house because that was, you know, for Hollywood, but in the house in Harrisville, Rhode Island, where all of this took place. And, uh, Andrea, I know that uh, you've been very um, – you've been making the rounds and you've been talking a lot about what goes on. And I think that uh, a, a lot of people kind of understand – that there's going to be some Hollywoodization of your family and of the story. And they have to do take some dramatic license uh, for the sake of the story. But one thing that you pointed out to me right away and I found to be uh, very interesting is that even though in the film your family is portrayed as not being religious and not being Christians, uh, you actually were and you were church going as well. Yes, actually we were. I understand why they felt the need to draw a line of demarcation between the Warrens being devout Catholics and, you know, I think they did it for juxtaposition. But uh, the fact of the matter is that my mother was raised in the Southern Christian tradition. My father was a Roman Catholic altar boy and followed the, uh, followed the religion, and my mother converted to Catholicism to marry my father. And then all five of us were baptized into the church. We never left the church. The church turned its back on us. The parish in Harrisville uh, had a priest at the time who was, I think, uh, I believe, was uh, truly afraid of what he was hearing about what was happening at the farm because we um, we talked about it. The five, you know, the five kids. Until we were told to shut our mouths, we were sharing what was happening in the house, and it got around town very quickly. There were less than 10,000 people in that town when we moved there in 1971, um, and um, it didn't take long for the word to, to spread, and at one point uh, the priest um, suggested to my father that we seek another parish in which to worship, and my mother was offended. Uh, it, my father just kind of threw his hands up in the air because he really didn't have a clue at that point what we'd been saying. Uh, we, we didn't discuss it with Dad because he was clearly um, highly skeptical and always came up with a pragmatic explanation for whatever was happening in the house, even if that was the unreasonable, irrational explanation. The most rational explanation was that we lived in a haunted house. But he was uh, still in that, while that denial phase? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. He was king of denial. 
And when when you're going up against that, I mean, your your father, and I'm just assuming that you're just like any other typical family in the 1970s. You know, your father is the rock of the family, and your father is the one who, especially being all girls, you're looking for him for protection, and you're looking for for him to be the guardian of the family, and for him to dismiss it out of hand like that. It, it must have been. Uh, very very traumatic for you in that regard that here's the the person who's supposed to uh, be the last line of defense between anything evil and and yourselves and uh, and it's hard to get him to to buy into what's happening well i find that to be a very insightful and a very accurate statement so I how did his fear his fear and his his inability to control the environment in which he had deliberately placed his family um, were the deciding factors in terms of his behavior in the first um, in, within the first year or so, uh, and it's still, I mean, for for several years, he just denied or came up with another explanation. It wasn't until he was approached. It wasn't until, I mean, things happened to him, and he still denied it. No, I mean, he really. Was, he was in bed with my mother the night that the apparition first showed herself, and his back was serrated. I mean, it was bloodied that night. Something, it, he was in like a coma. My mother thought he was dead. She, she grabbed his full head of hair and shook his head and pulled his hair so hard that if he had been of this world, he would have awakened. Mm-hmm. And when the cover fell off his back as she was trying to wake him and she saw what had happened to his back that she did not do, um, she knew that this was a very serious problem because there, right beside her, lay her husband, and he couldn't do anything to help her. And, and that means that if you look at it with that happening, then that means that you are helpless against it. Right. If they can have that kind of control over somebody, then, then nobody is safe. Right, which is what makes me, I don't think that, I don't think the scratches that appeared twice on my father's back, twice this happened to him, both times that the major manifestations happened in their bedroom. He was home both times and was unable to intervene on my mother's behalf in any way. So now you're starting to, to piece together the the kind of the story of what's going on that there are multiple spirits in the house that are that are uh, appearing before you and everything did i know that this is at a time when people don't talk about these things and there's not a lot of media out there uh, about these but did did the word haunted come at what point did the word haunted start to come up within your family uh the word was first used by sam olivson our attorney and our family friend uh, after the first major episode in my mother's room in my parents room uh the next morning she called sam uh at his home in providence on the east side of providence and she said i think i've made a terrible error in judgment uh I w find a way for us to get out of this house mm -hmm. but there were no laws uh disclosure laws on the books in rhode island and uh you know he did uh dig up what cases uh, had existed, there were two claims uh, from new owners of homes, and both of them were dismissed out of hand by the court. Just they never even got a hearing. And so you're going up against uh, really having no legal recourse, having no spiritual recourse with the church. Right. Uh, basically, you're trapped. Yes, and 
there were, you know, that's the number one question that I get. I mean, it's, I hear it so frequently that I'm adding it to an FAQ page on my, um, on my uh, website because <laughs> my favorite rendition of it is what the hell was wrong with you people that you stayed there for 10 years. And there are many answers to that, and I detail them in the books. Um, you know, a crashing economy, gas lines, uh, the oil embargo, the formation of the oil cartel in the Middle East at that time, uh, the upheaval of the end of the Nixon administration. Our economy was plummeting. We were had out-of-control out of inflation. The uh, value of the home was falling monthly. There was no way for my parents to financially survive walking away from that home with no place to put their five daughters. Meanwhile, the five of us who did not know the severity of what was happening with my mother, obviously she did not disclose that to us. Um, every time there was even any mention of we need to sell this place, uh, you know, we'd, we'd literally cry. You know, please, please, please don't. We love it here. You know, sure, yeah. there's stuff happening, but we'll be okay, and it'll stop. And you know, don't worry, it's all right. We'll get used to it. You know, I mean, we we'd say anything. The five of us would say anything because none of us wanted to leave it. It was just a paradise. It was a child's greatest dream of a place in which to live, even though it was cold and it was uncomfortable, and there were a lot of things about the house that were not that pleasant. It was a place where all of us felt that we belonged, truly belonged. And uh, myself particularly, uh, it's the only place I've ever lived in my life that truly felt like home to me. And given the opportunity, I'll buy it back in a heartbeat. When the time comes that they no longer want to be there or that they just feel a need to downsize or for whatever reason, I've already put that out there because I want to buy the farm back, not because I want to live there, but because I think that it needs to be open to people who are truly serious about studying supernatural activity, and I want it to be open to scientists and, and investigators that have a long history of uh, doing what they do best. Put uh, me on that list, know, please. Ken, for instance, um, is... I, I mean, I, I would want him there in a heartbeat. I would want um, Keith Johnson to have access to it whenever. I would want it to be a spiritual center and a, and a center for scientific study because I truly believe that it's a portal disguised as a farmhouse. And it's not just a portal to the past, it's a portal to the future. And I have evidence to support that claim. Well, my, my co-host here, Matt Moniz, is a scientist, so he'd definitely be somebody you'd want on the team. And I've been studying this stuff for close to 30 years. I'd love to get uh, a chance to check the place out. It just needs to be wired for sound. It needs to have cameras in every corner of it. I can so make that, that happen. Be, yep, <laughs> so that it can be examined literally you know, on an hour-by-hour hour basis, because what would be picked up there is just amazing. And, you know, for those times that if any one of us goes back into that house, something happens immediately. Just like when Nancy was uh, dating Eddie Richardson back in the late 70s, uh, his family, his ancestors built that house. Before it was the Arnold Estate, it was the Dexter Richardson Homestead. The land was deeded, thousands of acres of land, deeded in 1680 
surveyed by the original John Smith. Anybody who knows their history knows that name. Mm -hmm. And the house as it stands now was completed in 1736, and it had been added on over the decades. So we don't even know when they started building that house, but there is an outside window between what was my bedroom and the middle bedroom of the house that they left as they added on. So, you know, it's just an absolutely fascinating and extraordinary structure. Um, there are so few places in, on Earth, certainly in this country, that have that kind of history and that mystique, and it's just so beautiful. But you can feel the energy, and I'm telling you, Tim, I swear to God, I know two people who have been to that house, um, both with physical infirmities, one extremely hard of hearing, and one with very poor eyesight. And when they go into that house, their senses are fully restored. Wow. And when they leave, their senses are once again impaired. Hmm. So what does that tell you scientifically? There is something going on there where time and space, as we know it, is suspended. Have you repeated this a number of times? I have. I've told a number of people about this. Have you recorded it? No. Ah. No, I haven't, because I was not there either time, but both of these individuals are people that I know and who had witnesses to these events. And they, those people who had those, um, ha had those problems alleviated, if they go back, does it happen each time they go back? Yes. Fascinating. That really, really is fascinating. We only have about five minutes here before we have to take a, a break for the network news. Uh, but in that time, uh, you, you did make a very interesting point. And, of course, we're talking about the 1970s when we had all of that economic economic turmoil that was going on that did make it hard for your family to leave. But so, so often we hear in the paranormal that when people are having – uh, these profound experiences and they're afraid to be in their own home, uh, the common response is, well, why don't you just move? Why didn't you just leave? Why didn't you get out of there? And you pointed out beautifully just how hard it is to do that. Well, and not only that, though, you know, I have to tell you, Tim, in, upon reflection and in retrospect, with 30-plus years uh, to look back upon, I realize now and have for several years, uh, as this has all gelled in my brain, and I've written this story down in its entirety, I realized that the same elements that conspired to bring us to the farm likewise conspired to keep us on that farm for a decade until we learned our lessons well. I knew from the age of 12 that someday I would be the one to tell this story. And that's why for my birthday, the first year that I was there, I let my mother know that I had filled my journal and I would need a new one. And I journaled every major incident and a lot of the minor ones that occurred in that house. And over all the years that I lived there, and even when I went off to college, I have dozens of letters from my sisters. We affectionately called it the ghost post, so that when anything happened in the house, they would either call me in Pittsburgh and tell me what happened or they would write it down and send it to me because they knew I was the one that was chronicling everything and just really for my own purposes at the time but I knew someday someday I would tell this story because I knew even as a child how significant it was and I don't think it was 
so important that it was us per se. I think that that it happened at all is was miraculous, and that we were the ones privileged um, to experience it. But there are members of my family that consider that decade a curse, and then I'm I'm the one who I would say really considers it essentially a blessing. Well, we are just about up against the news here. We do have a call on the line, but I will ask that caller if they wouldn't mind uh, hanging on through the news or perhaps calling back after the news. And if anybody else would like to call in, coming up in hour number two, the numbers are 508-996-0500, 877-996-1420. You can also reach us uh, via the chat room on Spooky TV at SpookySouthCoast.com. That's another great way to share your questions and thoughts. Uh, you can also tweet us at SpookySC or email us, SpookyCrew, at SpookySouthCoast.com. During the break, go to the website, read our article post on Andrea and about her uh, books, House of Darkness, House of Light. There's also a link there. If you want to pick those up, you can get them in both hard copy form and as an ebook. I highly recommend picking up the hard copy form, the, uh, the hard copy version, because these are going to become collector's items because they're just flying off the virtual shelves. Uh, I know a couple of times I thought I saw that Amazon had uh, so, uh, sold out, posted there, only to get some more in there. So th these books are flying off the shelves. So go to House of Darkness, houseoflight.com if you want to get them. Uh, also during the break, if you want to go to legendtrips.com, we have the tickets up for sale for our USS Salem event. There's not that many left. So if you want to go to the USS Salem with us on August 31st, you better get those tickets now. And uh, once you do, you can also book your bunk on the ship for just $30 more if you want to spend the night there. Uh, we also have announced Legend Trips events September 28th at Slater Mill in Pawtucket, Rhode Island, and October 12th at the Fearing Tavern in Wareham, Mass., and coming up November 9th at the Haunted Victorian Mansion in Gardner, Massachusetts. Those tickets will go on sales very, very soon, and they'll be limited to 30 people. So if you want to go on that investigation with us, you need to join the mailing list at legendtrips.com. Back in just a bit here on Spooky South Coast. All right, everything's just going crazy all of a sudden. We're just going to ditch right out of that. <laughs> all of a sudden, everything started going crazy. The uh, the uh, broadcast that I had muted suddenly went loud on the computer, and then the computer's firing off. And Oh, man, that's the kind of night that it is. And welcome back into Spooky South Coast. We are joined tonight by our guest, Andrea Perrin, talking about House of Darkness, House of Light, her series of books that tells the inside story about what happened in the house featured in The Conjuring. That's right. V. Andrea Perrin, who a lot of people are probably just thinking of uh, as a character in a movie. No, real real person, real family, real haunting, and we are getting the inside story. And it's kind of funny that the computer just kind of was causing us some problems because earlier this evening, uh, one of our show's uh, number one listeners, uh, Chris, was, listening, uh, was, was reading your books, and she actually had prepared some information to share with me uh, in advance of our interview tonight. And she was talking to me, uh, I was talking to her over Skype, and all of a sudden, uh, right when we got to the part where we were talking about Bathsheba, my computer started acting funny, and all of a sudden, the sound on the Skype call began digitizing and and kind of doubling up and, and doing all these weird processing-sounding effects that it, it never does. And I'm a sports writer by trade, Andrea, so I use Skype every day, multiple times a day, mm -hmm. to make phone calls, and... I, I, I've never heard this happen. I know that it can happen if the internet slows down or whatever, but I've never had this issue before. And I immediately turned on a, a recording program that I use to record calls, and the minute that I turned the recorder on, this 
problem stopped. Well, probably about a minute and a half into it, but once I had the recorder running, it stopped. So I'm going to go back and listen to that later on and see if maybe something wasn't trying to come through uh, during that. But between that and now the computer issues here, I don't know. I think something's trying to keep us from talking about this subject. Uh, actually, I think you probably, when you uh, review what you had recorded, uh, you might be surprised by what you hear. Uh, I normally, when I begin any kind of a uh, interview process, especially if it's over Skype, I apologize in advance for anything that might happen because uh, it's it's not unusual. In fact, it is the norm for there to be some kind of electronic issue, problem, disturbance, interference uh, as soon as her name comes up. I've even, I was doing a show last year uh, a few months ago uh, from Germany with Matthew Brandau, uh, who's from New Hampshire originally, and he, uh, we had to cancel the show. There was so much interference. We only got about 25 minutes into a two-hour show, and we had to cancel it. And I normally do apologize in advance. I didn't get to that uh, tonight, but uh, this, is, this is very um, typical. She well. has a way... The, the frequency, especially on Skype, the frequencies, uh, the satellites, there's, I don't understand. Perhaps Matt, as the scientist, can explain it with some more clarity, but uh, <laughs> she'll hang up on the phone on me. So if we get disconnected, just call me right back. Sure. Um, it, it's, don't be surprised of anything that happens because it happens with such regularity now that it has literally become the norm when I am discussing her. Well, and I do want to discuss her. I'm sure we're tempting fate here a bit. Uh, <laughs> but when all these uh, things are going on, and, and eventually you make the connection to Bathsheba Sherman, how did that come about uh, in terms of your own research of finding out about, about Bathsheba? Well, I found out about, about Bathsheba as um, I was still very much the youngster. Um, Mr. McEachern, uh, as he's known in the books, uh, was uh, an abutting landowner and neighbor of ours, and he was in his late, mid, or maybe mid to late 80s when my mother befriended him, or he befriended my mother, and he came to our house once or twice, but she would go over to his homestead off of Sherman Farm Road and talk with him as well. And he's the one that initially told her about Bathsheba, and that's what triggered her desire to do more research. And he said that she was originally Bathsheba uh, Thayer, and if you come from Rhode Island, you know the name Thayer is uh, integral to the state, one of the original families. Uh, she was somehow intermarried or involved with the Arnold clan through marriage, Thayer's and Arnold's, but she had uh, a child in her care, an infant in her care when she was probably in her late teens. And the baby died. When the body was examined, uh, a needle was found impaled at the base of its skull. The doctor said that the child had died from convulsions. There was an inquest. It wasn't... Uh, she never made it to trial. There was no trial. There was an inquest to try to determine what had happened to this infant while it was in her care. And we don't even know if it was her own child 
or if it was someone else's because the uh, information is incomplete. But according to Mr. McTeacher and Mr. McCutcher, uh, she was uh, brought up on some kind of uh, inquest charge in the village of Chapachet because it was before the time that Boroughville was even incorporated as a town. And he told my mother that for all intents and purposes, she was let off the hook by the court. There was no proof that she had done anything to this child deliberately. However, in the court of public opinion, she was tried and convicted and lived her entire life in that town being um, talked about, rumor, innuendo. There were all kinds of folklore that uh, there was a folklore that seemed to grow up around her, according to him. And he said that he knew her when he was a very small, uh, a, a young man, a boy, in fact. She, uh, he described her as being absolutely brutal and vicious to the farmhands, that she would beat them, that she would starve them. At that time, they were indentured servants, and so they were at her mercy. There was uh, much talk about her having been a practicing witch and that she had sacrificed this infant uh, to the devil for eternal youth and beauty. This, I presume, based on the fact that she was by all accounts, a ravishingly beautiful woman, and that after this baby died, she aged rapidly, uh, which I found very interesting because, of course, my mother endured the same thing. My mother aged rapidly in the 10 years that she lived in that house. Uh, so that was, uh, uh, well, I'll get back to that. But anyway, Bathsheba Sherman was never actually convicted of anything. Uh, there were also rumors that she was not actually buried at the Riverside Cemetery, that uh, the family claimed her body. This is all hearsay. This is what Mr. McCutcheon told my mother years and years ago, and then my mother did some follow-up uh, research through Teach's her History of Burrowville. She went as far as Worcester, Massachusetts to find historical records and try to piece together the history of the house and specifically what she could learn about Bathsheba Sherman, who died in May of 1885. And when her body was examined, I saw the death record uh, with my own eyes. And in the margin, even though her death was written in as having uh, passed away from paralysis, in the margin was the physician's note in quotations it is as if her body had turned to stone. Hmm. And, and and to hear some of these, uh, as you said, a lot of it's hearsay, and, and you really don't know, but legends are usually based on some kind of truth. Yes. Uh, and it could be any number of, of reasons why she was ostracized, uh, in, a, in addition to what happened w with the child. But also, you know, being a woman of such beauty, there was probably quite a few other women that were jealous of her. Yes. And I know that there's been some accusations that she may have been uh, involved with some of these men. And, and there's even speculation that she might have had a thing for your father, Roger. Mm -hmm. Yes, uh, actually, whoever it was in the house that was approaching my father... Uh, made her intentions very clear, and she 
really loathed my mother and made overt advances toward my father by stroking his neck, touching his back and his shoulders, and letting what he said he described as icy cold fingertips uh, drop down his spine toward his bottom. To me, I mean, I, I, I understand that your family feels as though they were dealing with a number of, of different uh, spirits and, and you had different manifestations of such. Uh, but to me, that sounds clearly like a traditional succubus. Mm-hmm. It does. And which, it just makes me think, and, and I've been kind of holding this in a bit as you share share these thoughts, but I did talk about it with Keith Johnson. Uh, and, and everything that's happened on that property, uh, the, the suicides, the men who froze to death, uh, everything that happened with Bathsheba, it all seems to be coming down to there's, in my you know, uneducated opinion, because I, I haven't been there, I haven't investigated, and I haven't lived through it like you have, it, it just seems like there's some demonic entity there that is reaching its tendrils into your family in, in different ways. I didn't believe in demons until the night of the seance, Tim. And then I saw something happen to my mother that was utterly, entirely inexplicable. I saw her body come into a twisted, contorted mass in such a way that you would think that every bone in her body would have had to break. Mm. Uh, to hear that voice come out of her, to hear it boom through the house the way it did, to hear her scream and shriek in pain, uh, it was the most horrific thing I've ever experienced in my life. I pray to God I never, ever see anything or hear anything like it again. And for that to have happened to my beloved mother troubles me to this moment. She's the strongest, most resilient human being I have ever known or known of, and I am privileged to call her my mother. I adore her. I live with her. I will always live with her for the rest of her life, take care of her. I need to protect her. Uh, I've always had that, that need and sensation, but I've lived with her for the past six years full-time, and it is, uh, it's just been, there have been things that have happened that I have not been able to protect her. Uh, the thing that a few people, not everybody knows about yet, I haven't talked about it much, but last, uh, last March, well, March of uh, 2012, we were invited, I was invited and then suggested that my family come to New Line Cinema out to see to the set. They were thrilled, and all seven of us were going to go. Uh, at the last minute, my mother backed out on the trip, and interestingly, Lily Taylor, who plays my mother, uh, likewise backed out on going to the set that day. Even though she was supposed to be there, she didn't show. She's the only cast member that didn't come out uh, from Wilmington hmm. to the remote location. And uh, we were all very reticent, and we were all very disappointed because, you know, how many times in your life do you get a chance to do something like this? Sure. And we wanted Mom to come with us, not only so that she could have the experience, so that we could keep an eye on her. You know, she's, she's aged and she's frail and she's had health issues and we wanted, we, nobody wanted to leave her home alone. She insisted she would be absolutely fine. We went out to the set, everything went, was going swimmingly well, we got to meet everyone, 
they were as starstruck as we were. <laughs> it was mutual starstruckness. <laughs> and uh, we had some great conversations, shared a lot. They stopped filming three times so that the screenwriters could say script change because we were telling them things. And it, <laughs> you know, it was literally having an impact on, on what they were filming on that particular day. And so uh, everything was going well. About 2 o'clock in the afternoon after we had a scrumptious lunch, we were asked to do a group interview. They set it up within a matter of a few minutes. We all signed the waivers, sat down or took our standing locations in a group. They set the cameras, the boons, the screens. Everything was set. We were 45 minutes or so into this interview when a rogue wind, a supernatural wind, cut that, that whole set right in half. Everything went wow. flying, cameras, boons, screens, people. I mean, it was a 70 or 80 mile an hour wind. I immediately knew what it was. We were talking about Bathsheba. I looked around this five acre plus set and there was no wind any place else in these trees. Nothing was moving except us. And I leaned forward, I was standing in the back row and my sister Christine was at the other end. And I leaned forward and I said, Bathsheba's curse. And she nodded knowingly. Two hours later, we got the first text. Of course, we had our cell phones off. There was no way to reach us, and we were in such a remote location. They weren't really working well anyway. Mm -hmm. But two hours later, we got a text from my niece. Grandma fell at the house. She broke her hip. She's in the hospital. I'm with her. Oh, well, wow. they called the van. We left the set almost immediately, as fast as they could get that van. In the meantime, when we got closer into Wilmington, North Carolina, and the signals were better, there was this flurry of activity. Uh, she was in such bad shape that the doctor didn't know if she would survive the anesthesia. They decided to postpone the surgery and drug her up so that she wouldn't be in such agony. And <clears throat> they performed the surgery the next afternoon. They told us not to drive all night to come in the following day. When we arrived at the hospital at about 4.30 or 5 o'clock that afternoon, all five of her children walked into, the, into her room at the same time. She had just come out of recovery. Her doctor, her nurse, and three of my nieces were in that room, and all five of us walked in. And my mother, from a completely sedated state, sat bolt upright in bed and looked me dead in the eye and said, Bathsheba's curse. She does not want to be exposed. I have not sensed that presence in more than 30 years. And then she laid back down and didn't wake up again until the following day. She has no recollection of saying that. How is she doing now? After about three months of uh, my constant care and rehabilitation, and a serious bout with pneumonia. It took about six months to know that she was going to survive this ordeal. Uh, 2012 was the worst year of my life and the best year of my life. I saw so many wonderful things happen around this story, and I came very close to losing my mother. And I'll tell you what, when my mother ratted out Bathsheba, that entity and I went to spiritual war, and I won. 
Well, on that note, uh, if anybody has any calls for our guest, Andrea Perrin, you can give us a call, 508-996-0500, 877-996-1420. We have a couple of calls here lined up, so let's go right to the phones. Good evening. You're on Spooky South Coast with Andrea Perrin. How are you? Uh, doing pretty good. Do you have a question for Andrea? Yeah. Uh, what's been one of the most interesting, interesting things about this whole experience? The most interesting thing that happened to me in the house was when I or was just having, in, Or just in general, like, what's been one of the most interesting things about the whole experience, the whole, you know, with oh, everything. With the oh, filming everything? Mm. Just everything. Like, what's been one of the most interesting things? Well, that covers a lot of decades and a or, lot of rounds. Okay, well, Are you speaking about the, about the process of having her story turned into a film or about what she experienced uh, back in the 70s in this farmhouse? Well, I guess, you know, whichever one's easier to answer, you know, it's, it's all good. Okay. I'll let you take that, Andrew. interesting thing to me, and I can answer this, uh, it, the answer came to me immediately when you put it that way. The most interesting thing to me is that about four years ago, I discovered that there's a paranormal community worldwide, that there are para people all over this globe, and they have embraced this story with loving arms right from the inception, and the reason that it's known all over the planet right now is because of folks like you. And all I did was Google the word paranormal about four years ago when I started thinking, who am I going to present this story to? And I didn't know because believe me, when we left that farm, this was not a topic of uh, fascination for me. I wanted to move on with my life. We relocated from Rhode Island to Georgia. I started a whole new life and left it behind. And even though I thought about it privately, I never tried to get involved with anyone who might be doing investigations or I can't even do investigations because I skew the results because I bring spirits with me into the venue and that doesn't work. So, um, you know, what I did was I utterly internalized the process of my own personal spiritual transformation and thought about it for three decades, but never reached out and did not know that there were literally millions of people around the world that are utterly intrigued and immersed in the study of the supernatural. That was the biggest surprise to me. And for us, it's great to have someone such as yourself who is so willing to be so open uh, about her experiences and, and to endure. And you've endured interview after interview, I'm sure, of sharing a, a lot of the same information. But it's important to get this out there because somewhere out there, there's another family, just like the parents, uh, having to endure another severe haunting just as, as bad as this or if not worse. There are many. I get thousands of letters, literally thousands of letters from my readers and from people who are in a process of outreach, trying to find someone who can answer their questions and provide them some guidance. And it's sometimes some of these letters are absolutely heartbreaking. Uh, we are not the only family that endured hardships of this nature. I've never heard of a story, well, even the Warrens always described this as the most provocative, intense, and significant, and disturbing of all of the investigations that they conducted over a 50-year career as paranormal researchers. Those were their words, how they described it in one seminar after another. And they said that of 
they did more than 10,000 uh, investigations worldwide over a 50-year career. And on his deathbed, Ed asked Lorraine to please, while she is still of this earth, find a way to get this story told. And that happened to coincide with me beginning to write the book. Because before I even told anybody in my family that I had begun compiling notes and putting our story down chronologically in a diagram form, before I had even shared that thinking that there would be such reluctance that they'd kind of cut me off before I even started, really started, um, I got my first call from a Hollywood producer, someone who had been in touch with Mrs. Warren, who wanted to tell this story on film. All right, well, thank you so much for the call. Thank you. Have a great night. You too. Sorry I got carried away. Oh, I no forgot problem. I was still answering the <laughs> question. <laughs> well, 508-996-0500-877-996-1420. You can also jump on the chat room on SpookySouthCoast.com under the Spooky TV tab. Tweet us at SpookySC or email us SpookyCrew at SpookySouthCoast.com. Here's another call for you. Good evening. You're on Spooky South Coast with Andrea Perrin. Do you have a question for her? Yes, and I've come to say hello. This is <laughs> Keith Johnson. Hello, Keith. My brother you know, from another in, mother. I knew you'd know that. <laughs> Hi, Andrea. Hi, sweet pea. How are you, darling? I'm doing fine. How are you doing? Good. How's Sandra? Oh, she's upstairs asleep, fortunately. She's finally got to sleep. We finally got our son to sleep, so everybody's oh. sleeping peacefully, and I just feel Good. so nice was, and relaxed. That was my but. next question. How's Keith Jr. doing? He's, he's doing fine. He's doing fine. He has his moments, but but he's doing fine, and we're all sticking together as a family. As, oh, and as that's, so that's well, the name you know? of it, isn't it? Yep. Yeah. And uh, just wanted to, you know, of course, comment that um, a couple of weeks ago, Sandra and I took a uh, ride up to Harrisville because we w I wanted to show her Bathsheba's burial place, and, of course, the headstone had been fixed upright, and now it's... Um, now it's toppled over again, unfortunately. You know, there's been some, some damage there, some desecration, as, as always happens there. But uh, it's unfortunate that, that people have to do this. But um, anyway, I happened to be recording at that. I was audio recording, and I wasn't asking any questions. I just uh, simply happened to be commenting to Sandra the difference between the headstones there and the concrete stones that are there to hold the cemetery, the wrought iron fence up. Mm -hmm. and uh, I'm telling her the difference. And when I played my recording back, uh, you hear me saying that, but then there's a very low male voice that whispers, no, and disagrees with me. Now, I don't think that's the voice of Bathsheba, but I do believe that people doing these destructive acts in these cemeteries do bring in negative energy, and that's, that's what attracts these kind of contrary spirit voices. Yes. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. Plus, she's, uh, you know, that headstone's right next to Judson Sherman, too. But, yeah. you know, I, I told people in videos and in different posts uh, not to be overdramatic, just to be honest. I don't know who desecrated Bathsheba's gravestone, but she does. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, he's right, he's right there it, next to her. And I uh, yeah. I was going to say, isn't there some question about whether or not she's really buried in that spot? There is some question about that. Because isn't there a well on the property that has a, a big uh, bell-shaped boulder over it? 
You really did your homework. No, actually, I have to give credit to, to our, our listener, Chris, who supplied me with a bunch of notes to make sure that I asked. She's like, don't forget to bring this up. Don't forget to bring this up. And she specifically wanted to know uh, what your thoughts were on, on the matter of Bathsheba's final resting place. Well, I don't know. Uh, there, if, if you are a student of history, you know that uh, in the past, women who have been literally murdered uh, based on an accusation, uh, and Keith knows this too, we've talked about this, based on the accusation of witchcraft, have been drowned, have been had their bodies dumped in wells, uh, and had the wells covered with you know, what appears to be uh, a rudimentary gravestone. Um, there, Mr. McCutcheon had said something in passing to my mother, uh, always spoke of Bathsheba by dropping his eyes and his voice. Uh, in the few times that I heard him say anything. And that's where I recall hearing that there was some question as to whether the church would allow her to be um, buried in consecrated uh, ground. And uh, I don't know. I mean, short of exhuming her body, uh, there's no way to know. And I don't want to disturb anything about the Riverside Cemetery. I think that that's just best left alone. Uh, that well was abandoned, the well that's way back on the property at the old cellar hole, that well was abandoned uh, years before uh, she actually passed away. Uh, but there, there was some discussion of that, yes. Yes, and, and we, will, we will never know exactly the exact truth, what, what happened. Um, like Andrea said, short of an exhumation, but uh, her husband Judson is buried right beside her, and of course, his headstone is untouched. And there's still the um, the biblical epitaph etched on his headstone, which is, "Mark the upright; the end of man is peace," which is a paraphrase of Psalm 37, verse 37. So, um, I mean, this is consecrated ground, and I do have that. EVP right here if you'd like it's just a few seconds long if you'd like me to play it to you sure let's try it okay looks like footstones these are just over the fence now did you hear that no yes, I heard end? it distinctly wow Yes, yeah, that's the no we received at the end. Sounds very much like a male voice, and it's it's saying no. And again, this, you know, what attracts negative energy uh, is desecration, vandalism, violence, and um, I mean, there's just there's just no reason for, for something like that. Uh, I don't think that the town is going to be under attack. <laughs> you know, it's just somebody wants to destroy something because. And there was a news. There was a newscast. It was on the TV where uh, they were talking about it at a local station. And I think it was a teenage girl, a local teenage girl, was saying um, her opinion. Well, I'm not surprised it was knocked over. After all, she was a witch, you know. And uh, it's almost like like justifying it. And um, it's just just sad, you know. This this sort of thing is, uh, as we all know, is going on sometimes with the uh, alleged vampires in Rhode Island too. Their burial spots, and uh, that's where this negative energy comes from. Right. It, it, is, it is a shame, too, that people uh, 
just first of all, you can't leave well enough alone anyway. It's bad enough that she was probably falsely accused of being a witch. Right. And, and now you've got to pile on uh, even as she's in her final resting place. It's just it sickens me. I know it is. It's sickening. It's disgusting. And the fact of the matter is that the way her life and her history and her story is portrayed in the film is fiction. It's fiction. It's right. not based on the historical record, even though the historical record is fragmented and is you know difficult to piece together. What the screenwriters did was weave a tale. They told our story, and I think Keith will agree with me, they told our story in a very broad stroke, but the fine lines of history are written in these three volumes, and for all intents and purposes, this is looked at from every conceivable angle, and I truly believe, and I go into great detail in Volume 3 about um, our belief as a family, that it's very likely that Bathsheba Sherman got a really bad rap. And the fact of the matter is that she had four children in her life, and three of them died before the age of four. And can you even imagine losing three of your four children? Only one of them survived to adulthood, her son. Um, you know, what a miserable life. What a hard time to even live in New England, you know, with oil lamps and, and you know, oh, my God, firewood that you had to cut year-round in order to just keep yourself remotely comfortable in the winter. It was a hard life. And I think that that woman suffered more in life than any of us can even imagine. Absolutely, Andrea, absolutely. And two things about the movie that were accurate. I mean, you know, of course, there was a lot of you know, artistic license, but two things that were very, very accurate. Um, one was, of course, the story of the Annabelle doll. That was told very, very accurately, even though, of course, Annabelle... Higgins, the, the doll is actually a Raggedy Ann doll, but right. um, also um, the fact that, you know, doesn't, not necessarily in chronological order, but when they show the family, when they show the parent family just together at uh, near the end when they're together and they're just holding each other and you see that, that togetherness there, that support as a family unit, that's what came across to me when I was there at that house. Sure, there were a lot of frightening things happening, but that is the main thing that came across, was that family unit there. I think there are two very important concepts that the film gets absolutely right, and one of them is that love conquers fear, and that the other one is good conquers evil. And the way the film left it is that Ed and Lorraine Warren came to the house. My mother never asked for their help. She didn't know who they were. And... They came to the house and solved all of our problems. But even Mrs. Warren said to me in, in California, well, that's not how it happened. She said, <laughs> we didn't mean to, but we stirred up a whole lot of activity when we came to the house. And, I mean, she's sharp as a tack. She remembered every single – we talked for hours. Um, when I was out there with her for a private screening of the film in March, and then when we saw her again at the opening, we both times stayed in the same hotel – I spent a lot of time with her and her, her uh, son-in-law, Tony Sparrow, and then met um, uh, Heather when we were out there for the film. We talked at length. It was uh, clear to me that she had given them accurate information, and as I had given them accurate information, but they had so much information to work with 
that Chad and Carrie Hayes cherry-picked from this plethora of uh, just uh, so much stuff, the files, the the books, the everything that they had, and they told their own story. They created a third story from the from the two perspectives that they had on the original authentic story. And I think they did a brilliant job of it. I think it's an absolutely spectacular, beautiful, brilliantly crafted film. But it is fictional in many regards. And it's, or it's, um, what's the word I'm looking for, Keith? We talked about this before. It's uh, skewed. It's, um, like, for instance, the birds flying around the way they were doing, that was yeah. that. That yeah. we had we had an infestation of bats. We had an infestation of bot flies within a month of moving into that house. None of us it's could like, even it's like an stand it. The sound of the buzz in that house. And the day that my parents sat down and first discussed the real possibility that we lived in a supremely haunted house, all of those flies died together at once. And when the Warrens came, Mrs. Warren said, bot flies are, uh, she described them, or my mother described them as the devil's pets, but Mrs. Warren said they were harbingers of things to come. You cannot really kill what's already dead. Hmm. Well, <laughs> I do have to say that in, in finding out more about this story and, and finding out more about the Warrens' involvement. And, Keith, we talked about this when you were here, that, yes. uh, y you know, they kind of glanced over. They, they didn't even really mention that Pyro was there. And I'm, I'm assuming that the the character of, I forget his name, but the gentleman that went with the Warrens. Oh, uh, yes, their they're assistant. I, I'm, I'm assuming that that's kind of uh, uh, an avatar for the help that you gave the family based on what you described uh, to us. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and so to have it go right to the Warrens, I have to ask you, Andrea, uh, when the Warrens did come in, and I'm sure that it was a different approach than what Keith and the Pyro organization brought in when they came, uh, what was your impression of the Warrens when they first came in? Uh, very studious, serious, sincere, um, and uh, authority figures. You know, keep in mind that when I met Keith, he was only a few years older than me. Um, he was just so god drop dead gorgeous <laughs> is what <laughs> it was what they you still said. are keith when they, uh -huh. i know he is <laughs> um but when when they pulled up and keith he had a beautiful tunic on uh long flowing beautiful hair i mean just really a stunning man and my sister nancy went running into the house and she said mom jesus christ is here i mean, he really <laughs> looked the part even right down to the bible he was carrying um, and, uh, you know, my mother, my mother felt at ease with him and uh, just disarmed by the natural spiritual glow that he maintained to this moment. Um, however, when the Warrens came, um, I remember distinctly uh, them being much older, you know, appearing to be much wiser, although the fact of the matter is by that age, Libby, Mommy's on the phone. <laughs> oh. Um, she, um, uh, Keith had pretty much as much, uh, background as, uh, as they did. 
in terms of what his own experiences had been from childhood. So I was offended on their behalf that they were rather dismissed by the Warrens. I think that um, I know Keith came back with them once. He came back to the house with them once. Um, I believe uh, he and his brother came back uh, with them during one of maybe six visits that they made in total. Uh, but we lived there for 10 years, 24-7, 365. There was no way they could have crammed everything that happened to our family into that motion picture in a two-hour period. So yeah, I That think would have made it more of a documentary. It, it would have been. I mean, this is, you know, the stuff of HBO's dreams. They could turn this into a, a you know, a docudrama, ten segments long, one for each year. Um, and, it, and it was still would not be able to cover everything. That's the value, the real value of the books. But, you know, I do have to, you know, Keith might argue with me about this, but I have to say this. Um, House of Darkness, House of Light is not your average, ordinary ghost story. It really isn't. It's not only told uh, in third person, because, of course, I was a child at that time, and I'm an entirely different person now. And for the sake of uh, clarity, I thought it would be best if I referred to myself as the child I once was in terms of writing it. But it's also uh, almost impossible for the booksellers to even classify it. It's under about 22 different headings. Um, from science and uh, spirituality, uh, quantum physics, philosophy, theology, you know, on and on and on. It is a real study of the paranormal from my own philosophical predisposition. That's, I have a degree in English and a degree in philosophy. And Didn't somebody I, also describe it as romance? I, it's, I think it's essentially a love story, and I agree mm -hmm. with Keith wholeheartedly that it is, um, uh, in some elements of it, are a romance. Um, it also details the disintegration of a marriage. Uh, it also uh, goes into great length to describe what each member of the family went through, but it's poetry, and it's prose, and it's music, and it's... Um, it's, it's so many things wrapped up into one thing that it's not to everyone's taste. There are a lot of people out there that just want to read a series of scary stories. That's all they're looking for. And if they leap into these books, um, which begin, the first 60 pages, we're not even at the farm yet. The first 60 pages details everything that happened that catapulted us to the farm. Everything that happened that had to happen exactly the way it did for us to even end up at the farm, including the fact that two years before my mother even dreamed of looking at the place, we had gotten a puppy that was an African Basenji. She was a beautiful, extraordinary dog. My mother whisked her up into her arms held her to her bosom and said, this is a very special dog. She deserves a very special name. She looked up to the sky and she said Bathsheba. And that was the name of our dog who died a horrible, tragic death just months before my mother found the farm. And that was one of the things that sent her looking 
for her children to be able to be raised at a place in the country and to get out of the suburbs that seemed to have gone mad in the last year that we lived there. You know, and, and Andrea, you made a point there about how people want to just read scary stories. And with all that happened to you and your family, how did you feel when you found out that it was going to be made into a horror movie and it was going to be directed by the guy who directed the Saw movies? And you know, what was going through your mind when they said what I'm sure that you would have loved to have seen be a, a documentary or a docudrama turned into uh, just the, the latest you know, blockbuster horror film? I was absolutely mortified when I heard the name James Wan, and I had never seen a film of his. But I knew enough about the Saw franchise to quake. I, I literally shook. I trembled. I thought, oh, my God, what are they going to do? What is he going to do to our story? I was mortified, and I stayed that way for a year until I met him in person on the set, and I realized that he's a thoughtful, kind, considerate, highly intelligent, really brilliantly creative individual who had nothing but the utmost of respect for our family, for our story, had read every word of the books, had educated himself to the nth degree on the actual true story, and absolutely insisted to me personally to my father and to my sisters that he would do all in his power to tell it as authentically as he possibly could and even he didn't think of it in terms of being a horror movie and i don't think it's a horror movie i think that it's i think people might come away from it astonished and perhaps a little stunned but I also believe that they will come away, if they even bothered to think while they were watching it, come away informed. And it tells the story of Ed and Lorraine Warren in a way I did not think could be told. I think I, I endorse this film because I truly do believe that it is the foray into introducing the world to the real, true guts of this story which exist in the book. That's why I said they paint this beautiful tapestry in broad strokes in the film. The fine lines of history are in the books. Well, thank you so much for checking in, Keith. We have to take our final break of the night, so we'll let you go. Okay. Well, good night, Tim, and God bless you, Andrea, and it's always a pleasure, and we're never apart for too long. And that's, I know. That's I'm good. coming back in October, but... Call me, okay? Call me. <laughs> Sorry to use your airtime, Tim, but no, no. Go call right me. Ahead. I have stuff to share with you, okay? <laughs> oh, I certainly shall. I certainly shall. <laughs> okay. Thanks so much, and thank you, Tim. Thanks, Keith. Have a great night. Take care. Take care, Matt. Have a good one. Okay. Bye bye. Right. And uh, yeah, well, if you're coming up in October, Andrea, we we have to meet face to face. Absolutely. So, up here. We, we've got a pretty busy uh, October plan, but there's a lot of things going on that uh, maybe you want, might want to come along for, for the ride. You know? Oh, sure. You know, if I can possibly squeeze it in, oh, I, I do. I, I always say yes to the universe. I can only imagine now <laughs> what your schedule book must look like. Oh, it's uh, ridiculous. I'll bring my calendar and show you. We can <laughs> laugh. <laughs>
As I said, we are going to take our final break. When we come back, we'll have some more final thoughts with our guest tonight, Andrea Perrin. Any questions, 508-996-0500-877-996-1420. Back in just a minute here on WBSM's Spooky South Coast. Hello. Hey, man. Hello. You up? Hello. Wake up. I need to talk to you. I think your house is haunted. Hey, come on. It's 2.30 in the morning. I can't sleep in here, man. I'm scared. Welcome back in. Tim Weisberg here, along with the silent assassin Matt Costa and science advisor Matt Moniz. The final few minutes of Spooky South Coast with our guest, Andrea Perrin. Uh, but before we close things out with her, I just want to let everybody know about a couple of events coming up here locally. September 22nd at the Seaport Inn and Marina in Fairhaven will be the South Coast Paranormal and Psychic Fair. It will be headlined by Amy Bruni, star of Sci-Fi Channel's Ghost Hunters, and uh, also by Jeff Belanger, star of Everything Else. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you know him from 30-odd minutes from ghostvillage.com and, and from numerous other projects, uh, and including uh, being the co-founder of Legend Trips. So uh, we will have uh, Jeff and Amy at the South Coast Paranormal and Psychic Fair. Altered Reality Entertainment is putting it on once again. There will be all kinds of announcements forthcoming, so stay tuned to SC paranormalfair with an e.com and then also on sun sunday october 20th at 2 p.m at the main auditorium of umass dartmouth it is the world premiere of the bridgewater triangle a documentary film you can get your tickets they're just ten dollars uh the event is from 1 to 5 p.m with the film being shown between 2 and 3 30 p.m uh, you can get your tickets right now by going to the Bridgewater Triangle documentary.com and we will have uh, in the coming weeks we'll have Aaron Cadju and Manny Femilari on from the movie to talk more about the upcoming premiere of the film and uh, we really just have about two minutes left here uh, Andrea before we have to go I want to thank you for joining us and I want to leave with this question the movie ends with a nice tidy ending yes. but the actual story did not no not by a long shot but I understand why they they left it open the way they did. We were just in a pile on the front lawn. Uh, it, that, I think, is a metaphor for how we were as a family. It truly was our bond of love that got us through that. And I, I, was, I was parentified at a very young age. I helped raise my four sisters while my mother endured what she did in that house. And that in itself was a privilege for me as well because I had a, a true impact on their lives and tried to be a, a positive force and the light in the house of darkness, house of light. Uh, it was um, a truly tumultuous decade, but it also taught me what I needed to know in terms of my own spiritual development. I can't speak for everyone in my family, although in the third volume, is a series of essays that I think you will find very enlightening, written by each member of the family that describes in detail their own personal transformation and their journey Excellent. through that house. And, you know, I, I want to close, if I could, just on one note, and it's what I've been going around the country talking about. This is a four-dimensional story, and we live in a four-dimensional world, and the only bone that I have to pick with um, certain members of the paranormal community that insist that there is a veil that is thinning, I must um, uh, posit the theory that the veil is the illusion, not the ghost. 
that we are conditioned from a very young age to believe that we're not immortal, but children are born knowing that they're immortal, and we are all essentially immortal souls. So it is that quantum leap of faith coming to understand not only our, our own mortality and that death will be an inevitability in our lives, but that death itself is a transition and a transformation and that there is no veil, that we are all completely and utterly surrounded by spirit all the time. And when you're given the gift of that sight, it's a gift you can never return. All right. Thank you so much for joining us, and we'll definitely be in touch when the third volume comes out. House of Darkness, House of Light is the website to find out more. We are out of